0: Hey, welcome back to the Female Founder World podcast. It's Jasmine. I'm the host of the pod. And today I'm joined by the co founder of Blue Land, Sarah Pager Yu. And okay, so you know her from Blue Land. That is the company on a mission to end single use plastic that I think Sarah is best known for. But she's a serial entrepreneur. She's got multiple successful businesses under her belt. And so there's a ton that we can learn from her in this conversation. Before we get into the episode, I do have a quick note from our sponsor of the show, Gorgeous
1: paying attention to the customer experience. We aim to deliver every single time and being customer focused is really daring to be different. We first and foremost listen to our customers and always remember that customer perception is reality. Our demographic is Gen Z and this is the, I expect a response now, I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels, located in one place, we show up to work each and every day with one goal in mind, and that is to provide the best customer experience for our customers all over the globe. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. So AI and tech have played a large piece in a lot of the decisions that we've made at Princess Polly over the last year and going forward that we will make when it comes to utilizing systems to their fullest optimization. I will share that late last year, for example, we migrated ticketing platforms from the very popular Zendesk to gorgeous because it is the experience that we're focused on the agent experience and the customer experience. If you're interested in learning more about gorgeous, you can go to gorgeous.com and start a free trial today. Sarah,
0: welcome to the Female Founder World Podcast. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We're going to get into what you're doing at Blue Land. That is the crux of what we want to talk about today. But you're one of the actually quite few founders who has been on the show that comes from kind of that McKinsey MBA background. And I'm so interested in what your path was to entrepreneurship, because I know you've started multiple businesses.
2: Well, I have been a serial entrepreneur for over the past decade, which is Crazy Blue Lands, actually the fourth brand that I've had the pleasure to launch. I actually started my career extremely traditionally on the business side. Like you mentioned, I actually started my career at McKinsey, which is a management consulting company. I was in their New York office. And after two years of consulting, I also did two years of finance in private equity at a firm called Berkshire Partners. And I am so grateful for those experiences. Um, you know, I, when, when folks do come to me asking about if I would do it again, I absolutely would. I think for me, you know, I think those traditional experiences were helpful in both confidence building as well as helping me develop. A really strong foundation in business, and um, getting really good exposure to both a range of different companies and in different industries, as well as develop a really intimate understanding of like the different functions within business. I think, I think at least for myself. Had I gone into a specific field early on in my career, I don't think I would have had the pleasure to work with like work within a financial services company and also Mm -hmm. with a retail company and a consumer products company and a tech company and just to see what the implications are on a business when you have that different kind of focus because business like business is such a big general term. And I think also from a function perspective, like through consulting, because my experience at McKinsey, for example, I was taking on projects that typically lasted, you know, three to six months per project. And so I really also got to try different projects in different functions from HR to to finance, to marketing, to you know, product development and supply chain. And again, I felt like that, you know, gave me the ability to really take a really close look and develop a much deeper understanding of what those functions entail to for for to help me just figure out um, also long term, like what interested in me and what what areas that I, I may want to spend the rest of my life in. And so yeah, very grateful to that set of experience. But it's also very clear to me in consulting, for example, that as much as I valued that experience and I loved it, and I learned so much and I had a lot of fun, it also became very clear to me that I wasn't a lifelong consultant. Mm. I think for me, both consulting and finance, which are both services industries, for me, while I valued being able to like jump in and work on really interesting, impactful problems, it was unsatisfying for me to then like. You know, provide a recommendation, you know, do all this work, provide a recommendation that we believed in and then leave the company and say, OK, good mm-hmm. luck, you know, execute. And that's when I also realized during consulting that um, long term, I probably wanted would want to be deep in a business where I also then had the agency to drive decisions that I thought were Yeah.
0: Helpful. That makes sense. I also read that taking time off from work to go and do your MBA was a really pivotal moment in you, kind of starting your own business. What was the thinking behind that? Why did you decide to go back to school? Yeah.
2: So my reasons for getting an MBA were actually quite different. I feel like for most people, like I, I went into it with the primary objective was to take a break, to get credit for that break, and really create space to explore and really figure out ideally what I want to spend sort of the rest of my career doing. And I, you know, when I made the decision to go to business school, I was working in finance, I was working a lot. And again, I knew that long term, you know, it wasn't going to be a fit. But I think I recognize it was really hard to be working a very intense job. And at the same time, very effectively trying to explore what it was that I wanted to do. And a lot of times, at least for me, you know, I have to have a lot of conversations and ideally even like have an internship, which is what like business school also provided, give me a summer to take on an internship. And so business school seemed like a great way to kind of like, take a bit of a break, but also I get that credit love that break. A
0: break. <laughs> business yeah. school's a break. break for you. I've never heard it put that way before. That's amazing. I feel like that speaks very specifically to your character. And then, <laughs> so, okay, you started your first business, Snap while you were in business school in your first year. How did that happen? What was Snap What were you doing there?
2: Yeah, so the other thing to mention is, you know, leading up to business school, I had never considered myself entrepreneurial. I actually had never imagine myself starting something, I had always kind of assumed that that was going to be too risky for me. I was so fortunate to get to Harvard Business School at a time when there was such a strong track record of female founders coming out of HBS, having started successful businesses. So from the Guilt Group founders to Rent the Runway, to Bobble Bar, to Learn Best to Stitch Fix, Katrina was mm-hmm. just a year ahead of me. And that was really inspirational to me. You know, I really do you know, that statement of that like, you can't be what you can't see yes. like, really resonates with me. And I think for the first time, like it really demystified it for me. I think prior to that point, I thought like, oh, this is not something that I can do, like whether I don't have the experience or the set of skills needed or it's too much risk for someone like me. And I remember very clearly when Jenny Fleiss from Rent the Runway actually came back to HBS and I was a student there and she shared her story. And that truly just broke it down for me. Like they had this idea for Rent the Runway and how they got started is they just like bought all these dresses and started just like loaning them out to sororities and then dry cleaning them. And (laughs) it was just this very manual test. And, And then when I heard that, I was like, oh, I get it. Like these are like the steps that it takes to build something. I can do that too. And so that was really exciting for me. And, you know, I did go into business school thinking that like, some of the criteria that was important for me for a future job, like the elements that I did love about consulting and finance. I wanted to be in a fast paced environment where I could have Mm -hmm. exposure to larger things. And I was working on hard problems, but that I would have, you know, a lot of scope. And it was interesting because it was the first time I realized like, oh, startups actually also check those boxes. And so I decided cause I was risk averse, I decided like I should start something in business school. And again, like many of of these female founders, like Katrina from Stitch Fix and Jen and Jenny from The Runway started their businesses in business school. And I always, at that point, I thought like I would never be the type of person to like leave a job and like take that risk of like then not making income to pursue an idea. And so I thought like, oh, business school is a great time to try to see if I can get something off off the ground. So yeah, I kind of set that goal for myself early on in business school to see if I could start a company in, in business school. And that's how Snapback came about. I don't, I definitely have a lot of thoughts on starting a business, partly be, with the goal of like starting a business. I have a lot of watchouts there for sure, but that definitely was part of
0: where my initial exploration came from. What are those lessons I have to ask? I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about starting a business because you are interested in entrepreneurship rather than necessarily the problem that you're solving? Yeah. Yeah. I think
2: for that, it's the thing that doesn't sink in for a lot of people and certainly hadn't for me is like starting a business, like that commitment, it does feel like you're becoming a parent, right? Like that Mm -hmm. is a baby that you are putting out into the world. And, and it's in, in that way, like, it can be all encompassing and it can be a very long term commitment. And it can be one that you feel like you have to stick with to just see it through to the end, regardless of what happens. And so, you know, I do have, you know, a good group of female founder friends and, you know, some of them have been running their businesses for at this point, 10, 15 years. And, the journey is not easy. And especially if you're venture backed, it can be and feel like a very 24 seven type of commitment. So I do think you really want to make sure that you know, the business is something that you're deeply passionate about. And That's something that you really do believe has a lot of long-term potential. Cause I think even if you went into it with the mentality of like, okay, we're going to launch it and and we'll see, like, it's hard to have like a hundred percent certainty. Like, is this a business? And is this something that I'm going to still be passionate about in 10 years? And can I take this all the way? But I think the emotions behind it, it kind of is like having a child. I think even if, when things aren't going well, I think it's hard for a lot of founders to then just call it and, so, you know, it, it is a big commitment and something that, you know, oftentimes like you're going to want to stick with through thick, thick and thin.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned some of your friends who are founders who've been working on businesses for 10 to 15 years, but you were working on SnapBet for only a couple of years before you were acquired. And I also read that you handled the acquisition process yourself. And so I want to talk about that. <laughs> but first of all, what was SnapBet? What were you building there? Why was it special? And why was it acquired in two years? So SnapBet was a mobile app.
2: Um, that help shoppers find products in stores around them. And so the idea for Snapback came to me because when I got to business school, um, that's the first time I got an iPhone. So that was 2010. Lots of people were making predictions on how we'd be spending way more time on our phones than our computers. But at that point, it was still unfathomable. Like it, like the time spent on the internet, on the phone was still 10%, you know, and our phones were a lot smaller than we even know them today. And certainly were a lot slower. As well. But I finally switched over from my Blackberry to an iPhone. You know, a lot of people at the time, you know, app stores were really popular. People were getting iPhones for the first time and tried to like discover mm-hmm. like what kind of apps did they want to download. And that's when, you know, when I got that experience, I was like, oh my God, like we are now all walking around with very powerful computing devices. And it made me think a lot about like what are problems that exist today that could be solved with the fact that we're essentially walking around with a laptop. And I thought about shopping and how shopping search had come such a long way where if I had like a party this weekend where I needed a white dress, like you can find, you know, you can find options in your size at your price point on Google, but you know, you can be smack in the middle of Soho in New York and have so many options around you, but still not have a sense of like what's where in your size, Mm. like on sale. And so, yeah, that was the, you know, quote unquote problem. because I can't say it's like a problem problem, but that was the, that was the, you know, that was the task that we were trying to tackle. And so, yeah, we partnered with several hundred of the nation's largest retailers and brands to ingest their local product inventory and make that available to our app users right on the phone so that it can be somewhere and they could explore, they could filter and see what was around them. They could get sale notifications when they were nearby a store, et cetera. So that was Snapbet. Uh, from a timing perspective, we were really lucky as well because from the time we started Snapbet to the time we sold Snapbet, that percentage increase of mobile. Share of even shopping, it started. To, it was it was starting to explode, and so a lot of retailers as well as shopping search engines were starting to see that like very quick shift to mobile, and realizing they didn't have any in-house mobile development capabilities or marketing capabilities, and yeah, we ended up starting to get inbounds into the business expressing interest in buying the business about two years in
0: incredible for those folks who are listening who are maybe at the stage where they are thinking about maybe it's time to think about selling the business or they're being approached about an acquisition you've handled that process yourself what did you learn what can you share what are the watch outs and the lessons from doing that
2: yeah um definitely a handful i think one something someone said to me once that really resonated through that process was that companies are bought not sold I think that you know I think we were fortunate to get a handful of inbounds and so that put us in a really strong position then at that point when it became clear to me that it was the right time obviously like supply and demand in a sale process the more interested buyers you have the higher price you can demand and so once I started to see once people reached out once we decided like okay this might be the time to sell. Um, I then went out to try to drum up more demand and interest in purchasing the business, and I would say that was an interesting learning experience for me because I think even with Snapbet, you know, I had a very, I very, very robust decks on why you know different folks should want to own an asset like our business and that was i would say a largely unsuccessful exercise i think we got one more person interested but i definitely talked to a lot more people but it all makes sense i mean you talk to these companies and some were like very large like they have their priorities right and their Mm. goals set for the year you know even though like what you have to offer is compelling like especially they could these you know anyone oftentimes you're looking at a choir like a choir is going to be usually an organization of some size and structure and processes just because it would be interesting and additive does not mean that like they will reorient their priorities and be able to get sort of that buy-in to make, like, unless like something that you're going to provide would already happen to be on their roadmap and something that they wanted to achieve in the next year or two, it's highly unlikely. But that said, you know, we did get one additional, you know, party interested in and involved in the process. So I, and I think that did overall help the process So one learning definitely is like when it does t- come time to potentially sell, just make sure you're talking to. More mm. than one person, I think that just creates urgency, it creates competition, it creates, I think, a much higher likelihood you're going to be able to get a better price for your business.
0: That's a great tip, and I can't believe we're moving on to another business where you were a founding partner before we even get to your company now, Blue Land. But you went on to work for or join a company called Launch. You were, I think, it was a founding partner and that company was responsible for launching brands like Volane, Rockets of Awesome. You were the CMO at some of those brands as well. I want to understand what you were doing there. Was it like an incubator program? What were you What were you doing there?
2: Yeah, yeah. So Launch was a startup studio. I was a founding partner. And, you know, as I, I had a one-year lockup with Price Grabber, which was the company that acquired SnapBet, as did my whole team in you know, initially I was so excited. I was so optimistic about what that was going to be, and they were fantastic partners. It was just a much larger organization, so it was hard for me to adjust from like being able to move very quickly to all of a sudden thinking in terms of like eighteen month roadmaps, which is completely appropriate for a company of that size. And I think for me, I had also just like learned so much and had so many failures with Snapbit. I was kind of dying to. Do it again, like get back into the stage company buildings. I really viewed Snapbed as my first act, and I was like, I'm going to do so much better the next time around. But I didn't have an idea. And right around that time, Ben Fishman, who was a friend from the industry, he had sold Rulala, um, which was first ever flash sale sites uh, sites in the U S. He had just sold, and he and I, we both had the shared thesis that we were still in very early innings of direct-to-consumer. So this was 2013. Warby Parker was kind of like the only Mm -hmm. example of D2C. But I think we, as well as many people, start to believe like, oh my God, we're going to start seeing whole industries start moving direct-to-consumer selling online. And so we raised some money with that thesis and with the goal of launching one business per year in the D2C space across different categories. And that it wouldn't be sort of like other founders like we we'd come up with those ideas in-house and then we'd start building out those businesses in-house and then build out teams and then eventually sort of build out external management teams and we thought that because all the businesses we build were in d2c there'd be a lot of shared infrastructure or things that we could benefit from but yeah it was the idea for launch and that's what we did we at least during my time there we did Four businesses over launch four businesses in four years, so one every year. Wow! Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was an incredible experience, and I definitely cut my teeth launching new brands and you and bringing new products to market.
0: And so this brings us finally to Blue Land, and I'm wondering how the idea for this business came about, and how you kind of transitioned out of launch into running your own company again, your own brand. Yeah, yeah. So
2: kind of similar to business school you'll find this theme where i am a believer of focus and like time and space i feel like i go through periods of my life of like extreme like intensity but i mm-hmm. recognize that sometimes in that it's hard for me to then like explore other things or really like pull back and pull out and so 4 years into launch i also became pregnant and i became a new mom and i was very open to my relationship with work changing and evolving. I did wonder on the other side of parenthood, if I would still have the same desire to spend as much time as I was building new companies, because especially when you're building early stage companies, it's just, it just requires like a different level of commitment because you don't have like the resources or the team and there's no like roadmap. Like you're really just trying to like figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, and then I had my son and, for better or for worse, I realized I still loved working. I still loved early stage company building, but I also really needed more from my work. Like I just developed a deep seated desire to do work that was more personally meaningful. I think just the challenge at that point, the challenge and the excitement and the energy from like launching a new brand or product to the market like that alone wasn't enough because at that point I had done it so many times Mm. and at that point I started to question like what else like what else can me can I be doing you know how can I tie it back to my role as a mother and just some of it, it it was just hard I think whether it's you know in beauty or in fashion you know I was launching we were coming out with new products very often and I, like you mentioned, like I was C, as the CMO of many of these brands and as a marketer, I just started to question like do do our customers really need right more beauty products or do they really need another pair of shoes? And so, yeah, I had a lot of these big existential questions, and I just realized I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't I, I needed time and space to to figure all of that out. So I ended up taking a sabbatical actually, I ended up taking almost like another year off on the back of my maternity leave. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that point, I wasn't looking to start another business, for sure. At that point, I was just looking to spend time with my family, step back and just, you know, just reflect more upon like, what was important to me, what would energize me going forward. And yeah, it was during that period, um, I became passionate about just As an individual leading a more eco-conscious lifestyle, I was living a pretty close to zero waste lifestyle at home. And yeah, that's, it it was during that period that the idea for Blue Land came, came to me.
0: You know, you've done this so many times and I want to understand what your playbook is for launching a new, like, what are the first things that you go through to, first of all, I guess, validate the idea, but then also get things off the ground. What is that process for you now that you've done it countless times?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, validating the idea—it is the most important critical piece. I think both, you know, ensuring that you know what the area that you're exploring, something that you're passionate about, and that you could be passionate about still in ten years and twenty years is important. But also just validating the idea to make sure the business has the legs for you to be able to work on it for that long I feel like it gets a scale at whatever scale it would be. Personally, important for you to be exciting to get to, um, but spend a lot. I always spend a lot of time there. But like with Blue Land, for example, the idea from Blue Land came from this mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging. So that was the goal. Like you know, I started to learn more about the state of our planet, started to you know understand how much you know plastics' contribution to climate change, the problem of plastic pollution, and realized when I drilled into plastic that packaging makes up clothes it's the largest category of plastic waste it's the largest use of plastic production so i want to focus on plastic packaging but that was it i was agnostic as to like what the product would be what the service would be like that was the goal like how do we if the end goal is to eliminate single-use plastic packaging like where should we where's the best place to start and so what we started with it was actually two toothpaste tablets. It was an idea that I was convinced was the best idea in the world. Like I loved the experience. I was so passionate about it because when I was trying to live a zero waste lifestyle, toothpaste tubes were one of the hardest things to avoid because toothpaste tubes at the time were an aluminum plastic blend. So you couldn't mm-hmm. even recycle them. And so I started learning to make toothpaste tablets in my kitchen and I thought they were great. Like, you know, you you chew. And then as soon as you start brushing with a wet toothbrush, you get just as much foam. I was very confident I can make them just as efficacious as the leading brands. But I think, you know, a, a, a big thing to do is make sure to validate with other people. I think there are a lot of founders that... Get stuck in the trap of building a product or a service for themselves, and with every idea that I've had, and with the, that one certainly, like for example, with toothpaste tablets, I had forty friends and family try my toothpaste tablets for two weeks. I call them every single day to check in because I think your your views on it can also change. And I was also interested, yeah, in, like, is day one weird, but is day three okay? And like you know, is day ten like feels like normal, or is it weird the whole way through? And I set clear guardrails for myself. Like going into it, I told myself, like, metric for success would be that at least 25% of people would say, like, yeah, I'd be open to switching. Right. And that's like a pretty low bar. For toothpaste tablets, 80% of people said, like, absolutely not. Like, I would not switch. Mm-hmm. Like, I would not make I'm I I am not interested in making the switch. And so that was really helpful in clarifying. It was also really helpful that I set a line in the sand before I asked the question, because I think it would have been also easy for me to say like, well, 20%, like, that's not bad. Like, you know, is it good? Is it bad? You know, it's all shades of gray. But, you know, that's an exercise that we did with, or, you know, another set of products before we landed on, on cleaning.
0: That's a really interesting process to set those guardrails beforehand, I think is a really valuable tip as well. So once you have your product, what is your strategy when you're talking about launch marketing? What's creating buzz now versus what was creating buzz five or six years ago? oh my god the environment things are changing things
2: are changing things are changing every year things and now i feel like it's accelerating i feel like things are changing like every six months like there's never a silver bullet and even if you find something that works you can't rest on your laurels right like when i was getting started with startups like facebook was the place to be and we all kind of know the state of facebook now and then instagram really emerged as the platform where you could have great organic reach through your account, but also be able to work with a lot of influencers early days, even for free. Like if people truly loved your product, you know, they would be much more likely than they are today to go out and and, and gush about it and talk about it extensively. I would say, you know, Instagram is a great example of, you know, very proud of the presence that we've built there as a brand. But even that, you know, as a lot of brands and, you know, influencers and influential accounts will attest to. I think even engagement, you know, on that platform is waning. Now there's, then there was that blip during, and I don't know if it's still a blip to me, it's a blip, but during the pandemic, like Clubhouse, all of a sudden mm-hmm. it felt like Clubhouse is the place to be. And we we certainly did things there during that time as well. We definitely took advantage of that. Um, and now, you know, it's, it's on TikTok, like we're, we are admittedly still trying to find, our way. It's not clear. I don't think you can just play the Instagram. I mean, it is clear that it's not just the Instagram playbook yeah. quote unquote on TikTok. We're honestly still trying to figure out like where we fit in as a brand. Cause I do feel like, you know, TikTok especially is a more creator individual led platform, which is fantastic. But I think what I've mentioned does highlight, we have leaned on, leaned in places where there was a lot of organic word of mouth opportunity, you know, continue to believe that as a marketer, word of mouth is the best and more most powerful form of marketing. Outside of just having an incredible product or service, like that is first and foremost, and obviously that then engenders really strong repeat as well as, as word of mouth. They have always believed in focusing on those fundamentals first and making sure to see signs of life there first before really investing in other channels like ads, because, yeah, I mean, it's definitely so much more powerful when other people are talking about you than when you're
0: talking about yourself. Yeah, that's a great tip. That's very true. (laughs) Since you started launching D2C brands, that landscape has completely changed. Do you think that there's still space for new D2C e-com businesses to launch? Do you think that things are pretty saturated and pretty much done now? Where where do you see opportunities at the moment for for folks wanting to launch consumer brands?
2: I mean, I absolutely do think there's still opportunity for D 2 C brands. I think it really does come back to like delivering an incredible product or service that people love or need and really nailing that product market fit. So I think that part is extremely challenging, but I think for products that check that box, I still think that there's so much opportunity. I think definitely gone are the days, at least for now, where you could, you know, quote unquote growth hack your way into growth, like have a product that was kind of middling, but be able to take advantage of low cost advertising or low cost or free influencers Mm -hmm. to get to a certain size or scale. I think those days are gone, but I think that's good. I think it's going to force more of a focus on higher quality products and experiences. I think absolutely you see a lot of brands going into physical retail, but there's still that benefit of, you know, online, you're able to reach niche audiences everywhere, which is so hard to do Mm. locally. So I think to that extent for a lot of products, you know, there, there's something so powerful about, being online that you can't do in physical stores. I mean, there are like even as you think about like zero waste store concepts. I think those concepts are unfortunately still right now in time hard to support in most cities or most towns across America because there just may not be enough people that are passionate about that in any given in a lot of locales
0: across. Mm, sure. On the on a more personal level, I I've been watching you and you've become this kind of climate activist zero waste warrior as well as this entrepreneur and I'm wondering in 10 years time post let's say post Blue Land, what what are you going to be doing do you think
2: yeah uh it's funny because I've been thinking about that more these days um yeah. it's funny because I've as I'm getting older I feel like I'm thinking increasingly more about like okay now what do I want to be when I grow up which has been nice yeah. and refreshing That's cool. um Yeah. It's, 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 it's good. And I think it comes from just like the confidence, right. Of Mm -hmm. getting older and seeing like, Oh, I can do this and I can do so much more than I thought I could do when I was younger. I don't know. I'm still exploring there for sure. I think, you know, with blue land, you know, unlike my other businesses before blue land, I truly believe like blue land is something that I can work on like forever. Like I Mm -hmm. think I, I worry about like ever having to like, sell blue lane and being completely uninvolved because I don't think I'd be able to find another business as interesting or as personally meaningful or fun than than blue lane. Cause I just I do think there's so much that we can do and there's so much work left to do if you just think about consumer products generally and the mission to like eliminate single-use plastic packaging like there is yeah. there is a lot there to tackle and the innovation part of it has also been just like so, you know, fun and exciting to be able to Go do and try to do the things that a lot of other people just think would be impossible. But that said, you know, I am thinking also just more expansively about like beyond Blue Lynn. Are there other things that I'd want to get involved with? I think the past few years and even, you know, recent months and weeks have been tough to see, whether it's, you know, the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo. And, you know, personally for me, the reversal of Roe, Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, even with, you know, climate change, you know, a lot of times, often for us, It keeps coming back to the government and politics and just, you know, how large of a lever that is in driving change. Um, And so thinking more about there, I do think that at minimum, it is my responsibility to be more involved politically. And so and, and even with Blue Land, you know, as of two years ago, we introduced like two civic duty days where we give folks, you know, two additional days off, and we really encourage them to take it to either just like take the day to like read up on issues so know that understand how they might want to vote. Love that. To, yeah, to if they want to do something more proactive like phone banking or postcard writing, then that as well. But yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like how can I start, you know, supporting more candidates that I think can help drive a change. I've also started thinking like, maybe I want to enter politics one day. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I can see that for you. ways away, yeah. I'm not allowed to vote in America, but if I could, I'd vote (laughs) for (laughs) you. The last question that I ask everyone on the show is for a resource recommendation. And that can be a book, a podcast, a community that you're part of, something that's helped you as you've been building your businesses. From a book perspective, at least, yeah, for folks that are, you know, just getting started, I thought...
2: Lean Startup was a really helpful framework. It's a framework that I've been using for sort of the fa- past decade. And I I found that it's a really, it's a very, I guess, efficient and like platform that also really tries to drive that objectivity, which is hard. It's hard, mm. you know, especially when you might be so passionate about an area and, you know, have, you know, personally so much confidence that, you know, this is the right idea or may also... Have a strong desire to start your own, own thing. It provides good good frameworks as to to really try to suss out and and drive insights as to how can you improve, continue to improve um, the product or service idea that you have.
0: That's a great tip. That's a great book as well. I actually do have one more question for you that yeah. I just thought of when you were talking there. And that's for people who are looking for that idea. They want to build something. They think that they have the skills to do it and the drive to do it. Coming up with the idea and finding that white space, are there any trends in how you see people putting that together? What do you think makes a good idea and how do people come across them? It sounds like such an elusive, intangible thing.
2: It is. It is such an elusive and intangible thing. And having, you know, been at a startup studio as well, where that was part of our goal, like unearthing Mm. opportunity, you would think that like, like maybe like, a process of like selecting like really large industries and then like whittling down to like identifying like what parts of those industries haven't moved online or like you would think that there would be an effective framework for like whittling down to opportunity but i can't say that you know we were successful with that and at least for us and even for me with blue land the best ideas have come from like a personal pain point or passion, but that's not forever, you know, everything. I think there's folks that can find success by taking a more structured route. And you hear that a lot with, you know, these days, like Amazon entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. um, where they're really looking at like, okay, where is there a lot of search, but not a lot of products or a lot of search, but not a lot of products with high reviews. Yeah. So that definitely is a path. I think the only advice I'd give is just to make sure you put an overlay on that, with sort of where your personal interests and passions lie, because there are definitely opportunities that I've cited in the past um, where, like, it was very clearly like not how I would want to spend my time or just not my area of interest. So, for example, like seven years ago, I had the idea for a Botox bar. Right, and mm-hmm. actually now we're starting to like see those pop up. Like I saw Dry Bar, and I like you see where the world's heading with the Kardashians yes. and other media <laughs> and everything. And I'm like, okay, I like Botox Bar, um, but you know, it, and it was it was a large opportunity. Like many people saying, like I will give you money for that. Like you should do it. It's such a good idea. And I was like do, is that how I want to spend? you know, Is that selling? my legacy? Hours? Is that my legacy? Am I like, yeah. So, um, and it's also the kind of work you want to do. It's like, then it's like opening up a lot of studios. Mm-hmm. You know, and the studios will likely be with busy evenings and weekends too. If you want to accommodate like busy, you know, parents or working women. And it's like, is that how I want to spend my evenings mm-hmm. and weekends? Also dealing with like a receptionist didn't show up today. Like, what, and it was just, it became very clear clarifying when I played out like what my day-to-day would be that that just wasn't the type of work that I was most excited about.
0: Are there any opportunities out there that you're looking at and you're like why hasn't anybody jumped on this yet? Like this is an obvious thing that needs to be solved and I'm putting you on the spot but I need to ask. Yeah Yeah.
2: all the time. I mean there's definitely (laughs) things on you know I think a lot of parents can really relate. I think there's a lot of Things you buy that are used for a very short period of time, especially when you have a child and that child's a baby and it doesn't like the, oh, what am I? I'm forgetting the name of the, there's like this pillow that you put the baby on. It's essentially a giant pillow that kind of grooves down in the middle and you put the baby on. And I would say like, I feel like so many first time parents get that and your, you know, your baby can fit in that for maybe a month or two months max. And that's it. It's like a $200 pillow or like a bassinet. Like the bassinet is a Mm -hmm. perfect example of you really only use it for like two months max. And I just, I don't know. There just feels like there's a lot of waste and efficiency there. And at minimum, I wish that there was a way, a dream if someone wants to build this to connect parents with other families that maybe have children you know a few months or like a year mm-hmm. behind them, and maybe these are you know families in need that you know I feel like that would be so amazing because again we are going through so much stuff so frequently that I wish there was just like a clear place that you know we I could I, I could I could share share those yeah. products with.
0: That's a great idea. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an incredible conversation and it's been awesome watching all of your success and what you're building at Blue Land. No, thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun.